it's been quite a journey. And yet every one of those, um, as I look back now, I thought, Lord, how would you use those? And actually nothing has been wasted. And, and that allowed me to relate to a lot of different people, no matter whether they were on the street and homeless or they were in high, high positions, because I had been in each one of those arenas and had some understanding, which helped, really helped me to navigate when I was trying to actually make a difference in somebody's life. Friends, it's Morgan Snyder, and welcome back to another episode of the Become Good Soil podcast. As always, together, we use this podcast as an opportunity to slow down a little bit, to sink into our souls as men, and get curious about the core questions that shape us, that drive us, that form us, that forge us the questions that shepherd our souls in response to God in this path and process of masculine initiation. And it's fascinating that every one of us, our stories are utterly unique. And at the same time, our stories are universal because we bear God's image as men. There's something that God says to the world about himself through us as men. But there's also a process that every man must go through in his own unique version, a narrative arc, a way of becoming the kind of person that God meant when he meant us. John Eldridge wrote about it in Fathered by God, where he, he really distills it down to these stages of masculine development and masculine initiation, which he labels boyhood, the cowboy stage, the warrior stage, the lover stage, and the king stage, all culminating in the stage of the sage, of the elder wise guide and the father at the gate. And guys, in many ways, um, there are stages that we pass through and we're intended to pass through at certain times in our lives, but also in a lot of ways, there are layers of masculine development that we're able to recover pieces and parts of at any stage of our life the different parts of us that are still arrested, that are still uninitiated, that are still the boy inside the man that caused the man's world to go sideways, we can get those parts back. And one way to recover those parts and those places, those pieces of our souls as men, is to learn how to hear a man's story, learn how to see this universal recovery of the masculine soul in this process of masculine initiation, which we can see in the narrative of every man. And one of the things the Holy Spirit loves to do is use another man's story to shine light on particular parts and places of our story that are needing attention, that are needing uh, affection, provision, caution, intervention, repentance, repair, care, guidance, and ultimately just a manifestation of the heart of God. So in that spirit, I want to dive into a man's story today. And I'll confess, I love old guys that are young at heart. 
I think it's my favorite population of mankind to be with. I love old guys when you see a light in their eye, when they haven't become what I hear of many old men. That's um, one of the saddest phrases I've ever heard, set in their ways. But instead, their hearts are on pilgrimage. They are men who are consented to every day of their life becoming more of what God meant when he meant them. They're preparing to rule and reign with a God-shaped life and a God-saturated reality and well-being one day in the restoration of all things. Tommy Caldwell is one of those men. The best way to introduce him is to begin with a bit of a story that came to me through um, uh, a fellow BGS alumni who is a dear friend of Tom's and has been mentored by Tom. And he said he was up north in Canada with Tom last week. He was on his knees on a frozen lake and he paused to catch his breath from turning uh, his fishing auger through two feet of ice and it still wasn't through. His arms were burning from exhaustion. And he looked over at Tom as he heard Tom yelling through the 50 mile per hour gale force wind that was ripping across the ice. And what he heard Tom yell was, are we having fun yet? Now guys, Tom is an 81 year old saint. He's been through it all and then some. And here he is with a younger man out in the elements chasing adventure, recovering more of the boy and being more of the father that we find in very, very small amounts in this time in human history. Tom Caldwell is a hero. He's a legend of mine. He's one of the very first men I turned to when I was 30, looking for the counsel of older, wiser guides. And through asking questions and learning his story, he's become a mentor, a father, and a friend. He's rescued the hearts of over 1,000 pastors that have found themselves in um, deep darkness through moral failures. But that's just the most recent chapter of his story. He's traveled over eight decades. He's seen a lot and he has stories to tell. And so as we dial in and excavate Tom's story, I want to invite you to be led by your father to notice what parts of his story cause a reaction in what parts of you. We'll move through boyhood and then we'll go into the cowboy stage and the warrior and the lover and the king. And ultimately we get to do this with a man who's become a sage. And so Holy Spirit, we give you the reins. Father, we ask for your guidance and your shepherding and your care. And Jesus, we ask that the same power that raised Tom from the dead, that resurrection power would infuse the story in this interview, that you would come and shepherd each of our hearts through the uniqueness of Tom's narrative into those things that are universal, that we all share in common as men. And through it all, God, I pray that you would recover pieces of our masculine initiation and you would take us that much further down the path of learning to listen to a man's story, to understand 
the path and process of masculine initiation to learn what to look for, how to interpret in order that we might see clearly and become the kind of sons who live a God-centric life, a God-shaped life that learn to listen with a curious consent, eager, joyful, and intending to respond to the heart of God. Let's dive in. Tom, it's amazing to sit with you at 81 years of age. I think in going on nine years of BGS podcast, you may be our senior podcast guest. I'm just thinking back on your story and we've talked about a lot of this, but just just work, just assignments. Let me just list off some things to give people context of 81 years of masculine initiation. If I have it right, your first job was a paper route, and then you were a car jockey at a dealership, telegram deliveries, tobacco picker at a farmhand. You worked at a food market at an auto retail clerk. You were a police officer for quite a number of years, addiction counselor, trial preparation investigator for lawyer litigations. You launched a recovery program for boys and girls with addicted parents. You served as a CEO of a recovery center and a director for a Christian counseling center and focusing on pastoral care and helping pastors recover from from deep and dark falls. You participated in countless missions north of the Arctic Circle with indigenous communities and mission trips to the Eastern Bloc countries in Europe, even including Ukraine of all countries uh, for this hour on the earth. Mm-hmm. You've been a husband twice to the same woman, a father, a grandfather, and you've played a very critical role in raising um, not only your daughter, Michaela, as one of your children, but also your granddaughter, Kayla. Um, that's a lot of assignments in 81 years. How, how do you even react when you hear that? Um, wow. <laughs> it's been quite a journey. And yet every one of those, um, as I look back now, I thought, Lord, how would you use those? And actually nothing has been wasted. And, and that allowed me to relate to a lot of different people, doesn't matter whether they were on the street and homeless, or they were in high, high positions in office or, or in business. Um, cause I had been in each one of those arenas, yes. at least, at least for a period of time. And have some understanding, which helped really helped me to navigate when I was trying to actually make uh, a difference in somebody's life. Mm. So God hasn't wasted a thing. That is so hopeful because it's so many people find themselves probably at a place that feels like a cul-de-sac or a misdirection, and because they're not in their eighth decade of life. And so, yeah, Tom, that's very hopeful. And I think another way I see it as I. I've just been sitting, marinating in your story over this last week is the the interpretive grid of your masculine initiation of God forming you and forging you, of God maturing you and recovering parts and places that were lost or stolen along the years. And, And to see that he had some through line, he had some intention that was this tapestry 
of sorts that was all intended in some way, right? That even if the enemy means something for evil, God uses it for good. And yeah, so yeah. I, as I look back at your story, it's almost like I see these chapters that are very unique, but also very universal. That they're chapters that I can see in my own life, in the lives of countless men that I've walked with. And so I think it would be helpful to this wider audience of younger, like-hearted men who are wanting to respond to God with their whole heart mm -hmm. and interpret their lives. I think it'd be helpful to visit some of these seasons of your life and just explore them through the lens of your masculine initiation and your spiritual formation. In light of that, I'd love to rewind the clock. Let's go back 81 years. Okay. And let's start with little Tommy and born into um, the Great Depression. Take, take us to the earliest memories you have and how you understand them with eight decades now um, of, of life experience. Um, so much of the early years, the infant years were lost. I didn't, didn't recover them till later when I went on a search to find out the answers to those questions. But I, I do remember uh, my father in a Navy suit. Um, he must have been home from war and just holding me and up and, you know, looking at me and taking me for a haircut. But those, that's the only memory I have of him in the first uh, almost five years of my life. Wow. And uh, and so the, the the real memories didn't start till after he came back from the war. With respect to my father, my mother's another situation where I there's so little I knew about her because when you mentioned they were they were married and during right near the end of the Great Depression, where my dad had to leave the farm, he felt he did to go find work in the north in Saskatchewan. My mother was up there living on a homestead. They got married and they tried a homestead and. It didn't work out well. The land wasn't good. And they started moving south, trying to find work and worked in ranches and things of like that along the way till they got to Calgary. And and um, that's when I was born. I was about four years into their marriage. And but right about that time, the uh, great Second World War broke out. And my dad and two of his brothers enlisted right away. My mother was not known to me then, but of course later, she was just pregnant for my brother. So here she was stuck in the city with me and pregnant from my brother. And he goes off to the war and she tried to follow him to the West coast of Vancouver, which is about a 12 hour drive today, but she must take on a train anyway. Her, she had an older sister there. And so she allowed her to camp with her and she left me with her older sister, uh, Mary and, and headed off to Victoria on the Island, Vancouver Island to try to connect with my dad during that time. And I wouldn't find out this till later, Morgan was that she and I never bonded we stayed there for a while, but my mother, my aunt Mary uh, asked my mother to leave. They were, they didn't have a good relationship either. And from what I understood, what I understood through all that is that my mother had a real anger towards men. Uh, and that probably went back to when she was working as, in a, in a hotel in on the border town of, uh, of North Dakota and, and Saskatchewan. And, and I, I suspect something might have happened to her, but we, I don't know that for sure. But she, my Aunt Mary says, Tom, she always had an anger for men. She just didn't trust any man. And that included your dad, probably. So there was, a, there was already a fracture there. I don't want to throw my mother or my dad under the bus more because I understand today that they were broken. They had, they were, their lives were pretty miserable. You, you grew up with no plumbing and no electricity and, you know, and trying to scratch out a living and, uh, 
and uh, the hardships of living through that. And then, of course, the war taking everybody off guard for four years, almost five. The reality is I missed uh, those stages of development. They're critical. There was no affection. Put you in a dresser drawer on a pillow. And when you cry, I fed you or I changed you. But I, I regret now because I know that you probably needed me to hold you. So those pieces were missing. And we know, you know, I now know after studying Erickson and others that uh, that first critical two years is so critical. A child needs uh, maximum comfort and, uh, and minimal un- uh, uncertainty to trust himself and others in their environment. And we, we, we know that now. And uh, the trauma occurs at that age, really, really suppresses the development of a child. And I was, there was a lot of trauma. And I suspect there was trauma in the marriage that I'm not aware of, like consciously, it's probably there subconsciously, but I'm not aware of it. But I could, I now understand more about the pain and that how how trauma shaped, would shape my life. So Tom, there's a transition that happens to a boy, as you've talked about, there's that essential developmental stage from about two, three, and four, where we turn from mom and we look to dad for our identity. We look for his gaze, for his physical affection, for his care, and to see in his eyes who I am based on what we see. I'm curious, as you turned a corner into boyhood, um, what were some of those early memories as you were intended to move in adventures that were shepherded, that were guided, and opportunities to begin to not only have affection of the beloved son, but test the waters of your masculine strength. What were those days like for you? It seemed like a normal life at first. We bought a little, they bought a little house. Uh, I remember being able to play with my brother on the front, you know, in our sleds and stuff like that. And I do have a few memories of that. And, uh, but it wasn't long after we were there that they they separated. Uh, not didn't leave the house. My dad moved to the, the bedroom I had in the back, and my brother and I moved to the center bedroom. And then um, and then I, I used to jokingly say it was not a joke for sure. I used to say the Third World War broke out, uh, but it, you know, no pun intended at all. But but it was like the screaming and the yelling and uh, and. Uh, my brother and I would huddle together under the covers, and I used to make a, a makeshift tent with the sheets to say we're okay, we're in our fort, mm-hmm. and uh, we just cry ourselves to sleep. Eh? I don't, re- I don't ever recall my father actually striking my mother, but she would. She was uh, her pain was obviously so deep. She would, she would continually to nag and nag and nag. And finally, he would he he would come home from work and he would just have supper, and she started. He'd just go lock himself in the room and turn on the radio and he'd crank up the radio and listen to baseball or hockey or or other things and uh so that was the that was really the start more the beginning of uh a broken broken life Mm. uh a badly traumatized little boy uh, who was trying to figure out life on his own as you said you had very few memories and it wasn't until your 60s that you began to recover even memory and understanding interpretation of these earliest chapters of your life but fundamentally the the boy mom was not available she never nurtured and you weren't able to to attach and dad was gone and he was doing something noble but it also sounded like it was the easier thing to do to leave than to be home with her 
right? To, to, to work through the complexities of the nuances of a, as a woman carrying a lot of brokenness, her own heart. And so you come into the world and you, you don't have a sense of secure attachment. You don't have a sense of belonging. You don't have that. uh, um, You lacked the process of being shepherded into boyhood where you, you're meant to go out and explore the world and try things on and make mistakes and experiment. But instead, the world was a very dangerous place. And I hear you saying that people were actually all very dangerous, especially adults. In those elementary years, there's something really significant. John and Fathered by God names it as the cowboy. But there are these years where we're testing the waters. We're pushing our strength up against another. We're doing measured risk, measured adventure. And from this reservoir of being the beloved son, we begin to try to experiment, wrestling in our soul with who am I? What's the world like? What's my place in it? Do I have a genuine strength? Take us into some of that for you. So what I carried into childhood, into, into to my first years, first of all, I turned, I, my birthday was the end of December. So I was held back a year. So I was, when I started mm-hmm. kindergarten, I was, in, I was six years old. Wow. Everybody else was already moved on. Like, you know, and I'm the oldest kid in the class and I was really thin, skinny and I had, I had some uh, broken tooth and looked kind of funny. The trauma at the root of most ADD, ADHD, it's not a mental illness. It's, a, it's a, a disorder. It was so full of fear in Morgan. I, could, I had a hard time absorbing and I couldn't stay still. My mind was racing off. Out to, I could just get outside. It was safe for me to go play in the woods and the trees and stuff like that. So I would get the strap almost every day. A grade two, I... I, I they later fired the teacher because she I, I got the strap almost every day with a with a canvas belt strap with canvas and rubber about a half inch not a quarter inch thick and about an inch and a half wide mm. until you cried or you got a welt on your hand and that was part of corporal punishment was part of schooling then and it's because i was disruptive and i thought i was stupid i was certain i was stupid i was a misfit i didn't belong i was a mistake but the next year, I, went, I managed to pick up the year when I went back the next year. I had somebody who cared a little bit more and showed me, and I thought I was on my way. But then, and then, but then I got, I started getting bullied. And when my dad heard about that, he says, we're going to put it. And guys actually follow me on their bikes on the way home. would actually hit me going by on their bikes and stuff. So he said, we're going to put an end to that. And he, so he, he got boxing gloves. He started teaching my brother and I, who was a year younger, how to box. And so that kind of led into um, learn how to defend myself. And then when I was able to do that, it, it, it began to change things a bit, but it didn't change the fact that I didn't have any relationships. I had one friend. So what happened is I, I failed grade two, skipped grade five, failed grade six, attention deficit again, took seven and eight in one year. And then went off to high school, Morgan, I would hit, I would hit the wall when it came to writing the test the fear would just so consume me that I couldn't think. And I thought I must be, I must be mentally ill or something. There must be something wrong with me. It got so painful. And then of course the social thing started with people wanting to have parties and stuff. I remember going to one party and I stood in the corner, me in one corner. And I noticed there was another girl. She was frozen too. 
And I just remember feeling, I wonder if she understands, but we never talked about it. But I yeah. never went to another party after that. Never mm. played any team sports because I was pretty awkward. And and because I was, I was also uh, bullied and and, uh, and teased about that. That's when I uh, when I got into high school, I decided I'm going to get a job. And I got a job. I already had, you know, the other jobs you mentioned. I had a paper route with 100 customers. It was it kept me busy after school and kept me out of the house for like two half hours, rain or shine. So that was, and then as I got a little bit older, I started staying out after, after supper and stay out until I thought things were quiet and I'd go home. That was a hard thing, sitting, standing at the corner, hanging out at a little store there with older guys, but just totally lonely, just totally alone. So that was, that was, that takes me into high school. And then of course I got this job after school, telegram office. Just the, the telegram was just about on their way out, and the fax machine was invented, and that was the end of delivering telegrams to businesses. But it was okay. It was a little job, and it gave me some pocket money, which I saved that I was able to buy a bike and other stuff. But um, so it, it was off and on, and I end up I end up uh, quitting and taking and getting jobs at different jobs. You mentioned some of them. And so as we go into your story, I'm I'm very curious elementary into your high school years and this the warrior in you starts surfacing and and kind of culminates at this golden gloves moment there was a vow that you've talked about before about never needing anyone and taking control of your life and going at it alone and it had layers with this warrior in the category of boxing can you take us into some of that about that time my dad decided to they had a boxing ring not too far from my place in the summertime. And they set it up and he, he being an old boxer himself, he knew some of the guys that at the gym and that and hooked me up with the gym. And they started putting me in the ring and doing some amateur fights, uh, you know, just a local thing. And then got invited to, to go to Michigan to start doing amateur fights in the veteran Memorial hospitals. And I actually got lucky because I had a long reach and I, you know, a pretty, pretty good job. And, uh, but, um, so actually, I would I won all of those hunt points, but I my coach was always mad because I would never finish the guy off. I didn't have the mm-hmm. killer instinct. I was interesting. Like, now I was more of a lover than a killer. Like, you know, <laughs> I mean, I and I never picked a fight my entire life, but I would become enraged if somebody picked on somebody. But that played out a little bit later. But anyway, I did manage to win a, a number of fights, and I actually got an invitation to the Golden Gloves in Detroit. But here's the deal. My dad didn't go to any of those fights. And I thought, why? You know, like dad. You know? And then when I finally got invited to the Golden Gloves, well, it was at the old Greystone Ballroom downtown Detroit, which used to be in his glory day in the 20s. It was a great roaring 20s uh, dance hall and all that. But now it's pretty dilapidated. And, but it, you know, it held a lot of people. And I remember going down there in the basement. It was like about 50 of us down there. And it was one shower. And it was like the dungeon almost. Hmm. And, um, my, and nobody with me, no coach, nobody. And here I am starting to get filled with fear because I knew the guys there from Detroit. These guys were part of the, you know, the, 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 uh, the Joe Lewis Arena yeah. uh, Fight Club, you know, Leon Spinks, all these guys who became championship boxers. These guys would be training all day long. And here I was a, a weekend trainer or a couple of nights a week. So I began to get filled with fear. And of course, my fear, all of my insecurities were surfacing. And I remember the doc and I had. 56 fights ahead of me. So I was going to have to wait four hours to fight. And the doctor examined, he says, son, 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 you got to slow down. He says, you're going to use all your energy up before you even hit that ring. 
Right. There's no way of self-regulating. And I got beat up pretty bad. The guy yeah. was a much better boxer. And of course, I had nothing left of me by the time I got there. So I got my nose broken and, and eye blackened. And, and then to top that off, I had taken my own car. I went outside in the car and somebody jacked up my car and stole my two rear wheels. Pretty dark neighborhood. But there was, I got, anyway, I got home and, and I remember going in the house and my dad said, you lost, didn't you? I goes, yeah, I did. And that's what he said. He says, well, you're never going to be a boxer anyway. Your neck was too long. I goes, pardon me? pardon me, weren't you the guy that put me in the ring? And like, I'm, I didn't, I couldn't say it. I, I just said, excuse me, I did this to please you. I was thinking to myself, I did all this to please you, to make you proud of me, you know? And he just said it. And I, it was like a knife went through my heart, Morgan. And I just, I just was so angry. I just walked out the door. I remember going out, it was raining then. And I got a, I had a little 39 Ford convertible, a little coupe convertible with a rumble seat. And, and like, it's, wish I had it now but anyway <laughs> I remember getting in there and the rain started coming down and I just sat in there and saw board. I said okay I'm on my own I'll never need anybody I'll do it myself that's why I made a vow which would be very destructive because you know that I will never need anybody again I had this relationship but it was not for me it wasn't for who I was it's for what I could do mm. and that would be the way it would play out probably for the next 10, 15 years, mm. what I could do, even when I went into my other work things is what you could do. Tom, I see such goodness in that warrior heart of yours. And it was budding and it was begging to be shepherded. It was begging to be cared for because that warrior was meant to be a stage of development that builds on the beloved son, right? That you know that you are the, the, the apple of your father's eye. You know you have his affection. You know you have his attention. You know that it's not contingent upon whether you win or lose the fight or the game of life for that matter. And so I see that heart of yours as a warrior that needs to be tested in immeasurable initiation moments and just clearly just the, the orphan spirit that was on you for that big match and the idea that you were in isolation, no one to interpret the anxiety and the fear and no one to really shepherd you towards success. At the end of the day, the warrior needs the attention of a father who's communicating you are loved, not for what you do, but for who you are. I love that, uh, that quote. The most important thing about a man is not what he does, is who he becomes. Dallas yeah. Willard. Later on, that would be the glue that would keep me going. There was not much hope there. And um, when I returned to school, my dad moved out shortly after my brother moved, got a job, moved away. Nine. My dad moved out and, and uh, he, got a, he had a machine shop by this time. He had worked at this uh, concrete company as a machinist. And, and he basically, I want to, again, I don't want to throw my dad under the bus either because he was a man of silence, but I found out all his brothers were. They didn't talk. They were farmers. They talk about the price of wheat. It's going to rain. It's going to snow. Is it going to be sleet? Going to, you know, and they just didn't talk about, there was no emotions or no talking about feelings, of course. And that was kind of, there was a lot of that back then, you know, when, Nobody had psychologist or therapist or, or Dr. Phil or, you know, any of that, but, but he did some, he did some things, Morgan, that, um, and so does she, um, again, I want to say 
my mother was this unhappy person, but unfortunately she, when she would say, be, belittle my dad, she turned around and say, you're just like him. And, um, you know, I, not to be crass, but he, she would call him a bastard and I was the little bastard. You know? And I was, what is that? You know, surely it's not good. I'm a little boy and I can't interpret it, but surely it's not good. So it was reinforcing the shame. And there was a, once, and then it was also about the time that my sexuality got messed up. Tom, I want to pause there because it's really important to understand that the mother is the first one that's intended to call the man out of the son. And the father is the first one that's intended to call the woman out of the daughter. In other words, that is intended to be the first loving intimacy with the opposite sex. I remember a, a mentor was telling a beautiful story of his daughter who, when she was little, she told her mommy, she said, when I grow up, I want to marry daddy. It's the most perfect picture of a soul that is securely attached. She's been loved by her mother. She is secure. She's well fed. She is, is ideal identifying with the truth of who she is. And as her femininity is developing, as her sexuality is developing, she knows that she's made for intimacy with a good man. And so the natural first place is a, is a identification of an emotional connection with father. And so it's just fascinating to pause in this moment and to see in the place of where your mom should have been validating, defending, and honoring the boy. She actually shamed you for it. She took her own pain and her own hatred of men, her own disappointment in her marriage, and took that pain and turned it towards blame towards you. And so I have no doubt as that kind of is sexualized and we're young, and we begin to have sort of sexual encounters or first experiences, we, we are shaped by those things. Was it the case for you? There was this girl down the street. She was two years older than me. And she came down and we're playing in the backyard. And she, we had a little back porch on the back house, just a little bungalow house, maybe 900 square feet. But, but she said, we're playing like, we're going to play house. I said, okay, I don't know what that is. But look, you know, I don't know any girls. My only girl I knew was my mother. I didn't have any sisters. I didn't have any friends who were girls. I, okay, whatever that is, we got her. And she says, well, you got to take your clothes off. We got to get ready for a bit. I goes, really? And I'm just this little guy. Eh? I'm just, I'm going back young now. I, I'm sorry. I, I kind of got ahead, but I forgot to put that in there, but I was uh, probably about six then. Well, okay. I started undressing and my mother came out, saw us with a broom and she started swinging that broom and calling us dirty little pigs, mm. dirty little pigs and started hitting, trying to hit us with the broom and, and um, it that somehow really started to warp my thinking. Tom, those are really good words to use. And just my heart breaks for the little boy that had no orientation, no understanding to make the distinction between what he's made for and the appropriate place to fill those desires. You see the assault on the heart of the boy as it's moving from boyhood to cowboy and adolescence and just the vulnerability of not having older, wiser, loving guides. What happened after that? During that same time, and this is, I kind of, I forgot about this, but uh, I got to regress a little bit, but I was 
time I had my paper out, I was, you know, I'm now 11, 12, 13. And there was an older boy who seemed to be the guy to talk to and all that. And he, he lived a couple blocks over and he said, come on over to my place and I'll, I'll show you something you've never seen before. And I go, okay, whatever, you know, it's just like, you know, maybe he's got a nice collection or something, you know? Well, he did in the back shed and he had a shed in the back of his yard and his, what he had as a collection was back then it was Playboy magazines. Eh? Mm-hmm. He showed me this picture of this, in this magazine of a, of a woman who's, who was, her breasts were exposed. And I had never seen anything like that. And I was, and then he, then you begin to say, well, here's, here's what you got to do. You got to learn to do this. And, and he, and he started following himself and they just started touching me. And Morgan, I froze. I, uh, I was, I don't know. I was just frozen. I, a part of me wanted to hit him. This was before I was a boxer, of course. And a part, part of me wanted to run, but also there was a strange feeling that it felt sort of good. Right. But I felt guilty. I felt shame. Yeah. And then I said, well, I, and I finally, you know, he, no, no, no. He says, it's okay. It's okay. But Morgan, that, that didn't, didn't happen again. It was just that one time I got out of there. And it, but it really messed me up in my thinking, um, which I would find out later. You know, it was a play out later in my life. Tom, I think it's really important to pause here and just make a note of how common this theme is in masculine initiation of there are these moments that combine shame with pleasure, that they were intended to be good, right? Our sexuality is from God, and it was intended to bring pleasure and also be a place where we can offer pleasure and strength and care on behalf of others who are vulnerable and stand in need of masculine strength. But what happens in these earlier sexual encounters is there's this this enmeshment of things that are good and true and pleasurable with places where the enemy comes and sabotages and perverts and steals, kills, and destroys. And so we're left with a deep shame that's actually very confusing because there's actually layers of goodness and pleasure. And so often what happens is out of other people's brokenness who were meant to protect us, they actually increase the harm. A lot of times that happens by denying it or minimizing it because they just don't know what to do. They're actually in their own trauma response of avoidance because they have so much accusation. If this were to be true about this young person entrusted in my care, what does that say about me? And it ends up being about their own story. So it's so important in your story is to just name what surfaces is these traumatized parts of the boy in the man that are still uninitiated, that are still unresolved, that still need to be shepherded, and they still need to receive Christ in his healing work. It's so important to notice that boy is inside the man, and as long as he's there, inevitably he will sabotage the life of the man and cause things to go sideways a lot of the time. Tom, there's so much more of your story to unpack, but before we go into it, I I feel compelled to pause and to linger on this idea and sort of this stage of boyhood into adolescence, young adult, and the trauma response of unfinished places, the boy operating inside the man. So before we get into full-fledged adulthood, 
I want to invite our listeners to pause and be mindful that any time we are hearing another man's story, among many things going on in our soul, mere neurons and, and a soulful response, um, remind us that we experience through their story, parts of our story being illuminated. So I want to just linger for a moment, friends, and consider the boy within the man that's being highlighted through the telling of Tom's story. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you would guide us, that you would call to mind the sensations that we are even experiencing as we simply reflect on the earlier portions of Tom's story. So friends, just to slow down and linger for a moment and notice what are the predominant emotions that have surfaced as you've been listening to my conversation with Tom? Each of us have different parts of us that are uninitiated, that are younger parts of the boy within the man. And so linger with me and be curious about perhaps just one of a part of you that is young, that is at arms with the older you that has animosity, uh, strained relationship, because you see each of these parts within our soul relate to each other and they have different alliances and some protect others and some harm others, but all of them are keys. Um, they are keys to recovering the path that God is illuminating into the full restoration of the soul inside our being. And so just notice the emotions and notice where those might be rooted in your story or where you first felt that sort of emotion. Maybe there's a, a fear or maybe there is pain of, of lack, distrust, shame of failure, the anxiety or just being missed of something like Tom described of having a severe case of ADHD, but it went undiagnosed. And the message ultimately was, there's something wrong with me. Or it might be a boy inside that much like Tom had to walk in the path of self-initiation and peer initiation rather than a father-centered story of initiation. Just notice what's surfacing. And Jesus, your immense kindness and mercy and compassion is what allows us to risk bringing these younger parts of us towards you. And so friends, right now, I'm just inviting you to put the older version of you aside for a moment and to risk this younger part of you coming to the surface, to be in the proximity of Jesus, to feel what it needs to feel to be honest about its confession or its response or reaction to life as it found it. 
and now what it does to make life work apart from God. Notice what's surfacing for you. And this is very unique to every person. But in this moment, I want to invite you to come with me to invite Jesus into this place. This particular part of me that I know through the fruit is lacking, who is lacking initiation, who is perhaps lacking celebration or validation. Jesus, show us your face. What do you want to offer the boy? And would the boy be willing to risk letting Jesus come and tend to him to bring exactly what he needs? And if you're in that space and you're open and willing, then we can pray in agreement, Jesus, I invite you in here. I receive your compassion. I receive your mercy. And I am asking that you would come into this part of my boy and my story. I pray that you would heal my heart through your power and your touch, that you would heal my identity through your gaze, that you would heal my sense of depravity and lacking through a provision of your robust well-being. Jesus, I pray that you would come to this boy and demonstrate to him your resolute commitment to communicate your constancy of love, your constancy of protection, your constancy of nourishment, your constancy of friendship, your constancy of power. Jesus, we invite you in. We ask that you would do the work as we courageously say, we're opening ourselves to you in this place of very particular need. And Jesus, I pray that you would integrate this young place in me with the older parts of me, that you would allow this younger part of me to have a voice and to exercise the voice. And just Jesus, even right now I tune in, what does the boy need? What does he need? And Jesus, I have a curiosity if you have a gift for the boy. What is the gift that you want to bestow from your father's inheritance? Shine your light. Jesus, I bring every part of me known and unknown under every part of your care and your kingdom. I seal up the work that you are doing and I ask that you would open the eyes of my heart to see how you are rescuing and recovering 
the process of initiation to lead me into deeper maturity and well-being. I pray that you would, you would care very poignantly for the young boy in me. I pray that the older me would allow his voice, the voice of the boy, to be heard, his needs, that they could be expressed and validated, and that he would get a turn. Jesus, we seal up all this work, and Holy Spirit, we ask that you would continue to shepherd our hearts. And Father, we ask that your rich provision would come, that in you, in your gaze, in your care, in your well-being, you are enough, I am enough, and I have more than enough. That's the reality of your kingdom. May we walk into it and breathe your breath to sustain us as we practice what it's like to live in your kingdom in ever-increasing measure. Friends, we'll end with 60 seconds, and please join us soon for part two, where I'll be sitting with my dear mentor, guide, and ally, Tommy Caldwell, to unpack even more of his story. So let's linger for 60 seconds, see where God wants to take you, and thank you for joining us on another episode of the Become Good Soil podcast.